0: Welcome to Borough Talks, the podcast from the world-renowned Borough Market. We're bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast for more. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Borough Markets Podcast, Borough Talks. Today, I am talking with journalist and broadcaster Dan Saladino. Dan makes, frankly, multi-award-winning programmes about for food for the BBC Radio Four and the World Service, um, and perhaps most significantly for the food programme. How many years, Dan, food programme? 14. <laughs> <laughs> 14 years and you'll hear already that voice which is so familiar to so many of us who are regular food program listeners but today we're not here to talk about the food program or even Dan as a broadcaster we're here to talk about Dan as an author of Eating to Extinction which is publication day today and it's already award-winning which we'll talk about in a second. Happy publication day Dan.
1: Thank you very much and uh, it's as you probably know, it, it takes a long time to arrive at this, on this day. Yeah. And uh, at, at one point, I'd actually left, put the book to one side in my mind, because you hand it over, and yeah. then months pass, and then all of a sudden it becomes real again, and I had to start reading it again to remind myself of <laughs> some of the details, yeah. and uh, started to enjoy it as a reader for and the first time.
0: how does it feel on publication, day? Um.
1: I I think there is that sense that uh, the book has been something that has has been shared between me, the editor, um, a few people who've uh, really kindly supplied some of the words for the cover. And so the the book has been in a bubble and now it's the big day where it goes out into the wider world. And um, I have my fingers crossed and I'm touching wood thinking, you know, I I hope it's a book that people... uh, Find and feel is relevant and enjoy as a read. I, I hope there's a good combination of urgency, but also optimism yep. as well. And I, I've, as you said, I've, I've worked on the food program for fourteen years. I learnt so much writing this book right. about a subject that I thought I knew really well. Um, and I you know my relationship with food through the food program has been in, I've, I've traveled to many different countries and I've met so many experts um, I feel like I've, I went up another level yeah uh, in, in writing the book and I think that's partly to do with me usually sticking a microphone in front of a chef or another writer or a farmer and then telling me their story and I had to sit down with this book and tell what I felt was my story or the stories I had collected that I needed to make sense of, which I hope adds some new ideas about the history of food and perhaps the future of food as well.
0: I want to come back to some of the process and about how long you may be working on it because it is, it is a big old book. But mm. let's give um, our listeners a bit of a blast about what is it? What is Eating to Extinction?
1: If you were to sum up the theme of the book in one word, I'd say it's diversity. So, um, I, if I can go back to the moment when this, the idea really took hold in my mind as something that I was interested in, it was my very first edition of the food program. I'd sat down in the office, and the editor had said, uh, "You need to make, you know, this your first program. What? what tell me what you're interested in." And, what. and I said, "Well, my my dad's from Sicily." And I know right now it's the uh, harvest taking place uh, on the island for citrus. And I said, well, I, that'd be fascinating. And I thought well, maybe I could you know, speak to some people at Covent Garden Market and make, oh, go, you can go to Sicily. And uh, make a programme, which actually, was, it's quite unusual um, uh, because we don't travel for every every programme. But yeah. it just at that time, I, I lucked out with my first programme. I went off to Sicily on my own because Sheila was, was busy with another programme. And I arrived on the east side of the island near Catania, headed to Etna, where I was meeting some farmers who were growing blood oranges around the volcano, and it was there that I had I stood in a citrus grove and had a conversation with a farmer who said, "This is my last harvest.
0: Right. Wow. It's it's
1: com- this I cannot continue." He was ploughing his pension into keeping mm. his citrus grove running because cheaper oranges were coming into Italy from North Africa, from Spain. And then the, that evening, uh, I was invited to a meal spontaneously. So this none of this was planned. Went to this meal at an ag- agroturismo. Um, kind of setting, sat down, farmers, producers, um, some campaigners were there and every course of the f- the, the five-course meal had blood orange as an ingredient, so wow. the pasta, the starter, yeah. and obviously the dessert and I sat next to somebody who had travelled uh, to join this meal from Bra in Italy headquarters of the slow food movement and he sat down next to me and said these blood oranges are disappearing from sicily we've put it onto the ark of taste and i said well what's the ark of taste turns out the ark of taste was the noah's ark of taste that the slow food movement had created in the 1990s to say please pay attention these foods are disappearing um we need to save them Here is a catalogue of what is Mm. disappearing from the world. That was my introduction to the Ark of Taste. And I spent more than a decade after that meal finding those stories, uh, as many as I could. And now it's 5,300 have been added onto the Ark of Taste from 130 countries. 34 of those stories have made it into the book.
0: Okay. And... I love the way in the book you have. It's so interesting to hear that that so long ago has been the sort of germ that started mm. the whole thing. But it's broken down in stories about meat, fish, cheese, cereals, and it's for such a epic. Book in terms of what its intent and its scale, it's so readable that. I think that's such Thank an you. achievement. And you, you you are obviously, we know from the Free Programme, you are such a great storyteller that comes across this as well. It sounds so much like you telling each of these stories. And you get to the point of it so quickly. And some of these stories, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, they you delve into something for like four pages and you come out of it having learned so much. So it's it's a book to really kind of you know, dip into. And I think that is one of its joys as well. You can really just sort of pick it up and in four or five pages have taken on something which is so meaningful.
1: That could be the discipline of 20-odd years of script writing for radio right. where you have so few words to work with, you have to be so economical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With the, I mean, if I showed you a, a script for the food programme... Um, and really spaced out, it would be, you know, 10 sides of A4, yeah. uh, and a lot of that would be the inserts, the speech. So I think what I got from radio was the that discipline of of writing in a yeah. really concise yeah. way. Uh, I said, this good. is my first book, and you know, and I, I don't write magazine features or articles or for newspapers. Yeah. I just, you know, went straight in, and I, you know, the first draft was a mess, I, mean, I would admit, <laughs> you know, um, but I had to write it very quickly. Yeah. But then I started to enjoy the storytelling yeah. and then I could start to see how each story needed to begin and end. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, I learned to write a book as I was writing this book.
0: Yeah. So let's get into some of the stories mm. in a second. And I think it's important for people to see and, and to really come out to talk about it, I think, that it's not just about food. It's about the environmental impact of it as well, obviously. But it's also very much, and this is one of the things I love about it, about the, the cultural impacts of these things yeah was that always your intention to, to to wrap all of that together
1: absolutely and this is what I got from without realizing or, or being able to imagine a book might be at the end of the collecting of the stories over 14 years what I loved about these Ark of taste stories was that in this catalog and some of the you know the information was really um sparse but it was everything. It was history, the economy, the flavours, the the techniques, the, the, the sense of place. So through each of these specific tiny little stories of a, f- a forgotten food or an endangered food, mm. it took you into all of those things, yeah. history and economics. And for me, that I mentioned that word diversity, and I don't just mean... D- Genetic diversity, because that that's one of the big stories in the book, which is the why we need to save them. Because um, we know, we're talking today on a day in which Boris Johnson has just been standing up to the United Nations General Assembly and talking about climate change. Mm. And it might be a detail that many people have missed, but he talked about desertification, he talked about drought, and he talked about crop failure. And the idea is that in the 21st century, as the climate changes because we've been so efficient in the 20th, 20th century of, of creating so many calories um, with um, genetic uniformity, we are now realising that what we really need for this changing planet is adaptation and diversity. So there is the genetic diversity that we need. So that story mm. of the seed vault in the Arctic Circle, Svalbard, with, you know, you take wheat, more than 200,000 samples of wheat inside that seed vault. But you're right. It's not just about the genetic diversity that we need for our food security. For me, it was almost like the, you know, telling the story of what it means to be human
0: mm.
1: and how, how ingenious our ancestors were and how their identities and their cultures uh, were informed and formed food. Um, So this is why I think, for me, you know, I like to think there's a lot of anthropology in the book.
0: Hugely so. Mm. And I think that makes it all the more powerful, because you're connecting these stories with people and cultures. And it tells you so much about people, place and time. And through that, you do learn so much. You just touched on the first area that I'd really love us to delve into, which is about grain and crops and in the section um, around that, you talk about Orkney and I'd I'd love to just, for us all to understand a little bit more about what you were just talking about in terms of, well, the lack of diversity of the grains that we have and and that used to be thousands of different types and that's very much not the Mm. case now. Just talk to us about that and also why it matters.
1: Yeah. Um, So uh, as you say, the the book is divided into 10 different parts and there is, uh, so it starts with wild. And in a sense, that's the beginning of our relationship with food as hunter-gatherers. So mm-hmm. it's very much, that's why it starts with wild. And then it moves on to cereals. And that's, you know, us becoming farmers and domesticating some of the wild plants such as wheat, rice and, and maize. And barley also features, as you've mentioned, so Orkney bear is a type of barley. And like wheat, it's spread out of the Fertile Crescent you know, many, many thousands of years ago and as with all those other cereals so you know, oats and wheat and as they spread they diversify and they adapt to many different locations and also the palates of the people who are who are growing and eating them so those farmers would have been selecting as nature is deciding which grasses which cereals survive and on Orkney you know as as you can imagine an exposed um island it's in a the north atlantic place, it? it is absolutely and um so if you can imagine uh, well the further north you go in europe the harder it is to grow wheat but on orkney barley did grow and that then informs the the diet of the inhabitants so you have bear bannocks you know these flatbreads yeah. um, and, and the further north in europe you go the flatter the bread becomes because that's what you're you're baking with
0: it's so fascinating yeah. i hadn't really thought about it in quite that way until i read it again well of course, yeah. of course that's true that's just the living experience we all sort of know about. but the why is so interesting
1: and so the story of bear which i tell through the story of a mill on uh, Orkney um, in which probably by the middle of the 20th century bear itself as a crop was was fading away and if it was being grown it was probably being grown to feed to animals and it was only in more recent years that scientists botanists on the island with a bit of funding from the Scottish government started to think about what did grow here and what survived what grew well here Um, and they started to research the, the land races, as they're called, these locally adapted grains. And it turns out barley and bear, the, the, a variety you know, that, that grows on, on um, Orkney, grew when, you know, in the harshest winters when, or, or spring, summer. When, it, when the weather really um, hit hard, crops that would do very well could often provide nothing. The bear might have a lower yield, but it was always guaranteed to deliver some food. Mm-hmm. So it was it was so adapted to the conditions of Orkney. The other story we've been hearing this week, that idea of natural gas, fertilizer, CO2, and this idea that um, natural ga- gas uh, prices are so high that fertilizer companies have stopped producing fertilizer and a byproduct of CO2. That reveals to us that, you know, something of the supply chain we're dealing mm-hmm. with now in the 21st century and that question of that energy into the fertilizer, what the scientists also found was that bear would grow without those chemical inputs. So here we are, 21st century. We are also talking on a day in which the UN Food System Summit is happening in New York. They are trying to come up with ideas for the world of where do we go from here in terms yeah. of our food. My argument is that, you know, bear bear as a form of barley is not just a you know a lovely, amazing story of history. Thank goodness it survived in such a form that it could be part of our future as well, because all of those uncertainties bear could be part of the equation, all of its properties and characteristics. And I think they even found that it had higher mineral content than a lot of other grains. So eating to extinction, the world's rarest foods. What started out for me as a collection of just fascinating stories yeah. are actually stories of things that we we need for our future.
0: Yeah, Um. This is a very big question, I realise, but let's just um, mm. so if we can try and give a, a whip through something which hopefully people will read much more about in the book, um, is thinking about the grains and how we went from so many to so few. I'd just like us to just delve in slightly into why that mm-hmm. happens, that change, when, and why does it matter? We've got those grains, they're growing. What's it matter why should, we, why should we bother about having any others? Mm.
1: Yeah and it, it is a lot uh, much to do with you know urbanization and the, the arrival of certain technologies and science and there's a lot of detail in the book and there are some amazing documentaries that tell this story as well but but in brief, um, industrial revolution we start to see new technologies such as roller mills that starts to change the way in which um, grains are processed. it means we could have more refined flour. Um, that means the flour can be kept longer; it doesn't go rancid so easily, um, and that starts to change our relationship with wheat. Fast forward to the early 20th century, and we start well, the arrival of the word genes and genetics. Uh, plant breeding becomes a real science, mm-hmm. um, though that knowledge then is transferred to a big push post Second World War, which which we now know as the Green Revolution. Uh, and just to set the scene. Obviously, after the war, all the devastation, people were going hungry. There was also, um, in the years that followed, a population uh, boom, and so there was concerns over uh, famine in in different parts of the world. And with with all of that expertise and knowledge, and the, uh, the the talents of of specific breeders such as Norman Borlaug, they take tell us
0: about Norman Borlaug. Norman
1: Norman Borlaug was um, uh, some people would describe as an obsessive plant breeder who was um, given the task when he was based in Mexico um, to come up with disease-resistant wheat for Mexico mm. to, to actually improve the, 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 the livelihoods of farmers. Borlaug was so uh, driven, um, and you know, he was, he's now described as you know, a man who tried to feed the world and was eventually awarded the Nobel Prize. Um, not only did he come up with a, 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 type, a new type of wheat... That would improve yields in Mexico, and he did this by meticulous breeding. You know, and he was spent years on his uh, on his own doing this arduous task of hand pollinating different wheats to see if he could create something special, which he did. He took a Japanese dwarf wheat and combined that with some other uh, wheats with attractive properties, and um, yeah. So it, he he developed these wheats that were shorter. Which meant that they could grow grains. They, they could put more more energy into the mm-hmm. grains than just growing tall, mm-hmm. but they needed to be. You know, they needed lots of chemical inputs such as fertilizer and pesticides and water, which at the time didn't seem such a big issue. Um, and he changed the world and he changed the food system because he was so successful in creating these dwarf, high yielding wheats that they not um, only were grown in Mexico. They quickly went to India, to Pakistan.
0: Roughly uh, when is this now?
1: 60s. Okay. 60s and then into the 70s. Mm-hmm. And and in parallel, this is also happening with rice as well. And so what we end up with is this really attractive solution to world hunger and productivity, high-yielding crops, but they're all the same. There's a, there's a, there's a great deal of uniformity. And so I tell the story of a, a Turkish emma wheat, which... Um, was adapted to the conditions of a mountainous area in eastern turkey and like thousands and thousands of other wheats it was it was displaced by these new green revolution wheats and so the whole the whole system in terms of the 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 breeding of the wheat the the um, chemical I- industry that that delivers the goods for that wheat, and then the processing of of that wheat and the rice and eventually uh, corn and you know maize as well. Um, so we end up with this attractive idea that um, this is going to fix everything. Uh, they're super producing. Um, it takes you know fewer farmers to deliver yep. more calories. It's all sounding great, Ant. It does. No, absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And this is and again, Borlaug is seen as a hero. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Coming there, isn't but it? there is a big but. and even Borlaug saw the but. and he said, "This is not the long-term fix. The other things around the world will need to change." This is this is, you know, and some people might say, "Well, it's 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 a, a techno fix," and actually, it's a techno fix in isolation because, you know, words we are now using didn't apply then. So the word biodiversity. For example, which we are talking about now, and which at COP twenty six in November in Glasgow will be on the agenda. Um, you know how much has been lost in the world, and that that is to do with rainforests, and that is to do with uh, savanna, and 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 with to do with insects, pollinators, and you know all the other kinds of biological diversity. What I'm arguing in the book is actually this a food story as well, mm-hmm. that alongside all that other lost biodiversity, foods have become endangered and they actually are they are the product of the efforts and the labors and the ingenuity of our ancestors. Mm. And how how um how easily we've allowed them Mm. to disappear.
0: And then the our over reliance on certain grains is leaving us hugely vulnerable.
1: Well because that that story um that recent story of two companies producing most fertiliser in the UK. So it's not just about <laughs> depending on a small number of plants and mm-hmm. animal breeds, mm-hmm. which is another story. Mm. It's also depending on a small number of companies as well. Yeah. And therefore, it's as if, you know, if you were to invest your life savings in, in, in a portfolio and you only chose two companies, then you're taking a big risk. And we've done the same with food. And that's why diversity isn't just important, Um but also it's going back to the idea that, you know, what makes us human mm. and what makes you feel like you are in a certain part mm. of the world as well?
0: Yeah. yeah. Let's run with that idea about different parts of the world and about globalisation and the way that could sort of papering over the differences of, of, of place and time and, and different cultures. And you tell one of the wonderful stories, one of the one stories about um, Japan and you're telling a story very particularly, I think it's about the skipjack tuna. Is that mm, right? Yeah. And you're telling that story, but within a much larger context of how much things change for Japan and why. I'd love you to tell our listeners just mm. a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. This is a, a, a preserved fish. Um, so it's bathed in salt and then and packed in salt. So it becomes, it, its flesh becomes really hard. And actually, in the process, it's turned into something beautiful because it's a ceremonial um, food as well, Uh, and it's used at at shrines. But in essence, it's taking something from the sea and preserving it for future use. And it's like um, katsubushi, so it becomes like a really hard, solid food. And And the role this played in Japanese food culture is really revealing, I think, because you would just grate a tiny amount of this Hard have protein. You tasted it? I have. What's it like? Really salty. But I think that, that and and this is why I think it's in the skill of the cook as well. Because what you would do is you would take vegetables and you would put, you know, a sprinkle of this protein on it, and it would fill it full of umami and add protein to the meal. But it was only a tiny, like a garnish. Okay. And in a sense, Japanese food culture was a mostly a, a, a vegetarian food culture. Um, and, but what happens in the nineteenth um, century with American pressure to for Japan to open up? Because for a very long time, you know, a, cent- cent- a couple of centuries, it was closed off to the outside world. Um, <clears throat> the Japanese take a look outside at what's unfolding around the world, and they're seeing the rise of. Western economies and, uh, and, and, you know, America and the British Empire. And they think, well, you know, a lot of Japanese scholars thought, well, we need to, what, what are they doing that we're not doing, which means that we can compete in the world. And, oh, they're, they're eating meat. And so there's a transformation that takes place from the 19th into the 20th century in Japanese food culture where it becomes more meaty. And, um, and then I tell the story of, um, you know, this is also captured in the idea of bluefin tuna, which many people associate with being, you know, this, that's a, you know a part of deep Japanese food culture. But it's not. And I had was, no
0: idea about this until I read it in yeah. Eating to Extinction. And tell everyone, tell yeah. everyone.
1: No, but it was, you know, it, it would have been dismissed by most cooks and chefs in Japan at the beginning of the 20th century as being, as, as one expert calls it, a garbage fish oily, fatty, you know, not, not at all pleasurable. And, uh, because of this changing palate, and then there's the American occupation of Japan as well. So they, the, you know, the American influence actually changes, um, agriculture in Japan as well. But what we then see is that, um, and it, this is great, a great story that, that was uncovered by another journalist a few years ago that I include in the book. Um, they, they they were sending lots of electronic goods over from japan to the states but the planes were coming back empty and they need that's a very expensive thing to do mm. and then somebody did a bit of scouting and then they realized that there were these huge fish being caught on the um the east coast and they thought well you know that could be a potential ingredient in japan uh, and because there's this you know demand for more more meat um perhaps this could work economically and it and it did and and the the fish in question was bluefin tuna so it kind of enhanced that appetite for something that had been dismissed a few uh, decades ago but as you say it's it's a it's an amazing example of how food cultures change also of how we perceive some food cultures completely (laughs) inaccurately um, and how external influences can change things very quickly
0: yeah and so the uh, sorry, we were talking about at the beginning of this, about um, the skipjack tuna and the yeah. curing of that. How, how, to what extent is that still being done?
1: There is one producer left. Literally one. Literally one producer left producing that particular, using that technique of salting the skipjack t- tuna to create these solid little blocks. More people are making katsubushi. That's a more, mm-hmm. that's a more familiar um, food process. But for what it, I mean, so it's, it's about skill, knowledge, craft that's disappearing with, with this mm. guy if, if nobody follows on from him. But also it, it's the last glimpse, in a way, of that predominantly vegetarian food culture mm. with just a sprinkle of protein. Mm. And for me, it's almost like a clue that... Um, and again, this, I, the book isn't about meat or different comparing one diet against mm. another or arguments in favour or against veganism or vegetarianism. It showed or it told me what our relationship with protein and animal protein had been and it, which is extremely different to some of the other stories in the book where i talk about the abundance of chicken which is a familiar thing but again fascinating in in terms of how that happened and it's like the green revolution story again a, a huge application of science and technology and breeding knowledge to transform mm. a food mm-hmm. very quickly
0: and fish, it feels certainly, it feels reading that section of the book is something which has very much suffered through you know, all of this uh, sweeping through of things. There's a line from the book. You say we believe the oceans contained a limitless supply of food and became far too good at extracting it. You know that sort of sums up the problem.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it's uh, and again, it's almost as if the technologies that we acquired during war wartime second world war like sonar or whatever it's almost like we then you know after that war was finished we, we started to wage a war on the fish in the sea using that technology um and yeah i mean with that amount of effort um how could the fish yeah. how could the fish survive yeah um and we were we were just we became too good
0: yeah
1: at that and um this is why i think the work there's, there's an expert who who helped with some of the research callum roberts who's a professor of marine, bi- marine biology and the, the thing that st- struck me about his work was that he was saying there is nobody alive today who can relate to the abundance that the seas once had. And what he did, he went back to records that were in people's diaries or looked at paintings capturing what the 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 seas were like and it's just mind-blowing about the fact that and perhaps there's some exaggeration but you know sea captains saying it was difficult to move the boat through the water because of the the size Mm -hmm. of the 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 schools of fish that surrounded them and that has disappeared from our world
0: it's heartbreaking. Mm. And it's such an interesting section of the book, as I say. And you, you talk a lot, of, you, you, such an interesting section about salmon and about oysters, which all very much plays into that. But I just want to dip as well into what we talked about um, towards the beginning of this, which is that it's not just about the impact on uh, food and food culture and the environmental, but the cultural impacts as well. And it's a lovely story. Um, well, it's not a lovely story at all, really. It's a heartbreaking story about um, in West Africa, the grey mullet row, and how it's the particularly... The women who are being impacted about what's happening there in terms of eating, to extinction. Mm. just tell us a little bit yeah. about that story. And you know, I'm pleased
1: you've selected that one because that this is the Imragan. A nomad. Well, they were a nomadic people who moved along the, uh, as you say, the coast of West Africa uh, as the fish moved as as well. And they uh, they they had this great skill of taking the the row the egg sacs from the the uh, mullet and preserving them. And then I think over centuries that this would travel through um, Africa, would would be prized in Egypt. Um, But it captures also uh, the arrival um, in recent decades of huge fishing vessels along the West Coast from Europe, from China, from Russia, um, all backed with government subsidies as well, which there is absolutely no way the Ragan, let alone the people of Mauritania, where you we know, the country that they're in, can compete with. And in fact, the Mauritanian government then enters into deals with European governments to sell off quota, so they can come into those waters and and fish. But what then unfolds is this this culture of, of these this nomadic people who were great, great, uh, great fishing um community where there was a a, a sexual um, division of labor so the men would go out fishing and then the women would um then prepare or you know process the row now the men could still go out and be paid to go out onto these foreign vessels and fish the women were left with no fish to process and so the 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 real victims of that story Mm -hmm. of of the the mullet, the the egg sacks, no longer appearing, was that the women lost mm. their jobs, their livelihoods, and some had to go to the s- cities.
0: And how's that gone? That
1: that is pretty much gone. So just before I sent the book off, I was trying. I, <laughs> it took me a long time to speak to people who are actually in that part of Mauritania, and that unfortunately was um, one of the stories where I didn't, I wasn't left feeling optimistic yeah. because people had made efforts over the years to try and help the women supply them with fish or to give them markets so that they could sell into Europe. And the last conversation I had was that there were very few, if at all, any women who were processing um, the, the, the egg sacks. That could have changed. Mm. And uh, I know there are many NGOs or charities or, or activists trying to restore that culture because it's just devastating mm. on an entire population.
0: Completely, absolutely, and it's 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 the wonderful way you can weave all of that together. And um, the last sort of detailed story, which I'd like us to take you know, take a, a wee look at, is you know, thinking about how some of the change is enforced by laws and rules and uh, general modes of practice changing and thinking about it particularly in the context of cheese. But before we get into that, I'm going to read out my favourite sentence mm-hmm. I've yet, so far, found in the book. I feel awkward reading your words out you, but I'm going to... So Dan says, Cheese changed the world, enabling humans to extend their reach and settle in some of the most inhospitable places on Earth, among mountain ranges and in highland areas. By turning milk into cheese, the life-giving energy of the sun could be captured and stored mm. I mean just let everyone soak that up you know the mm. life giving energy of the sun can be captured and stored within cheese you, you just create this wonderful world of what cheese is beyond just, yeah. just loving eating it uh, sorry granddad no you going?
1: I, I, you've got you know you've absolutely got it and I and th- this again was just one of those moments where I just yeah it hit me that this was something that was so important to our history as, yeah. as, as humans that there came a time when that interaction between humans and, and and livestock animals and sheep goats cattle and and that process of figuring out you know the milking process and the the acid, acidification of the milk and turning it into cheese that you could store that you know liquid that 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 sunlight that energy which meant that that in those parts of the world where you couldn't gr- grow grains yeah. you could go with animals and and survive because they were doing the yeah the transformation for you.
0: It's incredible to think of cheese mm. like that. And yeah. it, and also that a cheese made in a particular place, whether the pasture and the microbes in the air and all of that, that cheese is identifiable as being in that place. It's
1: unique, yeah, to that ecosystem. As you say, the pasture, the wild grasses and other plants, the breed of cattle that can survive only in that, or, you know, can survive... And do very well in that environment, the microbes in the air um, and around the whole process of, of cheese making, you know, the, the particular skills and desires of mm-hmm. the farmers in that part of the world. All of those things only <laughs> come together um, in that one location, mm-hmm. and they produce a cheese which is a you know a unique food. And and it, it you know I would argue, as would many other people, that it, it is cheese. That is the food that truly reflects reflects the place that it comes from.
0: I think that's why at Borough Market the cheese is really, you know, a fundamental part of the experience. You know, there's so many cheese traders there and so many people who have these wonderful stories, these wonderful cheeses that are connected with you know particular places around the world, not just British mm. cheeses. But the one I would really like to focus on is storytelling the book about British cheese, about Stilton slash Stichelton. Mm. Just tell us. Tell us what that story is and, and what that story tells us.
1: Mm. Well, it, it 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 tells us uh, about the um, evolution of certain particular British styles of cheese, and Stilton, as with with many of the others that we we love, you know, cheddar, um, Lancashire. They, they were they were products of the modern era, and they were cheeses that could be traded and transported. But they were very much part of you know the place that they they came from, so they had their own characteristics mm. as, a, as
0: a good Lancastrian, I'm obviously you know very proud of you know, Lancashire cheese and you know, and the Mrs uh, Kirk's, you know, which Mrs. is very amazing, yeah. you know, yeah. which is absolutely it
1: and we talk about uh Kirkhams because that's the surviving you know traditional Again, only raw one, yeah. milk but there were hundreds of them yeah and you know and likewise with Stilton. Uh, before the Second World War, in fact, before earlier than the Second World War, it started. It, started, it was starting to to fade away as a farmhouse cheese, and it, and it ended up in factories. But I think uh, the, the really important story that applies to to Stilton, but also many of the other cheeses, is that transformation of of milk and particularly liquid milk, because as as we urbanised and milk liquid milk started to be moved around a lot more or became you know a product of the cities. There were risks and hazards of that. And so, quite rightly, liquid milk um, was pasteurised. Cheese is a different thing altogether in terms of the fermentation process. actually does resolve a lot of the safety issues, but as as with so many things, it all gets swept up. And so most um, British cheeses then become cheeses made with pasteurised milk. Stilton eventually was no exception. So um, in the 1980s, the very last... Uh, raw milk Stilton um, was produced. And, you know, there were food scares, um, you know, unfounded food scares or or associations made with raw milk that were never proven. But what it meant was that that a cheese did go extinct. And that was the unpasteurized milk Stilton. And um, thank goodness uh, Randolph Hodgson of Neal's Yard Dairy, along with Joe Schneider, uh, an American, hatched a plan together to bring back this extinct raw milk cheese. I think cheese. we should make
0: a film about this. It's been it a should, film about, we should, yeah. Be, there it should be a, be a film.
1: Know, a, a great buddy movie of these two guys <laughs> you know, rescuing this cheese. And, you know, and Joe Schneider saying, well, I'm an American. Why should I care? But he's saying this is your heritage. And actually, I think that's the thing that I many people might think, well, it still tastes like, still, you know, it's st- Stilton still tastes like Stilton. But, but actually, for a lot of people, no. It and, and the story matters, and the, and the the flavors that they love associated with that different production technique, all of that matters, and the fact that it was the original Stilton was made with raw milk, that matters. Joe Schneider got that, and he, you know, and saying, well, "This is your heritage. I'm going to help bring it back," and so so they did, and they couldn't call it Stilton because at that by, by the time that they started to bring back a raw milk. Uh, cheese made to a Stilton recipe, um, the PDO, so basically the um, the the legal um, criteria by which a Stilton was judged had as one of its rules that it had to be made with pasteurised milk, and so legally they couldn't call mm-hmm. it Stilton, and so they came up with the name Stichelton, named after the old English um, uh, name for for Stilton.
0: Which so, I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, when there's obviously yeah. so much I didn't know while yeah. reading this. But, but it's a lovely but, little Yeah, touch. but it's
1: a really optimistic story, isn't it? That yeah. things can go extinct, but things yeah. can be brought back.
0: Yeah. Well, you've led us on to ending on a positive note, which I think the book really does. I think it's B. Wilson who on the back of the book is credited as saying it is a book about loss, but it's also a book about hope. Mm. And that very much comes across. Um, and let, let's look at that. What are mm. your fears for the future but also hopes of future in terms of the food system and its broader context Mm.
1: well it was only possible to write the book because there were so many people out there that I could go and visit who were saving things so in a sense the book is their story it's the story of people who are fighting to save these food traditions and these genetic resources and these flavors and these cultures so in a sense um, I'd say I, well, I would hope the book does leave you on a positive note, but also as there are movements now underway and you know the arc of taste itself coming from slow food mm. is a reflection of the fact that there is now a global network of people mm. who care about these things. More importantly, and I think the real cause for optimism is that, um, well, again, today, Unite, uh, the United Nations Food Systems Summit, diversity is part of the agenda of that. The world has woken up to the idea of the importance of diversity, Uh, A lot of people were making these arguments many decades ago. In fact, when the Green Revolution was underway, uh, um, uh, a botanist called Jack Harlan, an American uh, botanist, was saying this is a problem. And then that was in the early 70s. Mm. Um, The Russian um, seed saver uh, Nikolai Vavilov Vavilov, uh, in the 1920s was saying we need to save diversity. So in a sense, I feel optimistic now because uh, although it feels very frightening what's going on around us, very big organisations are now saying this matters. Mm. Governments get it. The message is going out to us. Um, I, don't think, I don't think the blame should be put on our shoulders as individuals because there are very big, powerful, structural forces um, at play. But I think that awareness, and I hope my, a very small contribution in raising that awareness in writing the book, means that more of us understand that beyond is it good for me, do I like the taste of it? Um, is it healthy or not? Is it cheap? That added on to that um, is diversity. Mm. How diverse is this food really? And whether, the, you know, you're eating a cheese, you know, a bar of chocolate, behind that lies plants, fruits. Um, I, I think we just need to be asking ourselves, yeah. what's the diversity behind this food? And could I, could I go on a little journey with my favourite food to the nth degree, to taste, you know, a cheddar um, that's different to the last cheddar I, I tried or, you know, a, an unusual variety of grape.
0: I, think, I feel like you're challenging us, Dan, to rethink how we engage with our food. And that's such a positive thing. It's one of the things I love about being in the market. You can wander around and talk to the producers and the traders and find out the stories. And I think we do have to re-engage.
1: Well, that's the other positive thing. So I, I could point around the world to places where diversity has been saved. And, you know, I could talk about Svalbard and the Arctic Circle, in the Arctic Circle with a million seeds. But actually it is places like Barrett Market. And they have been almost like the Svalbard of food processing and people who for for decades have produced... They were clinging on some of the last survivors of some British traditions And Borough Market gave them a platform uh, where where no other platform existed. And so in a way, it's like its own mini Svalbard of food production.
0: Yeah, And we can all seek out the different places where these things are happening and support and understand. I can't emphasise enough to everyone listening how fast you have to get yourselves a copy of Eating to Extinction and start reading it because it is such a good read. It's really accessible, gorgeous little chunks and... You get so much from it. Thank you so much, mm-hmm. Dan. Enjoy, you know, this moment of releasing *Eating Truck Sanction* because it's—I it's, say—I I hesitate to say about books being important because it always sounds a little bit pretentious. But um, I sort of feel like this is an important book and such a good book. So, huge congratulations! Thank Thanks you. again. Thanks to all of you for um, listening to us and joining us on Borough Talks. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. A reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week. For those who can't make it down here, you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.